very special episode of the Fire and Water podcast. I'm one of your regular co-hosts, Rob Kelly, creator of the Aquaman Shrine. Um, my regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, is on a work trip. He's uh, putting down a little flare-up in Argentina. I don't want to get into it. But anyway, um, so filling in is just me. I have uh, really one of my favorite people, period, uh, on the show this week, Alan Brenner. Alan Brenner, who has written... Uh, only like 12 comics in his lifetime, but like, uh, as I've said before, I think nine of them are classics, two are superb, and one is merely very good. Um, I grew up with this guy reading his comics. I loved it, and um, he has been a, a very good friend to me uh, since we've gotten to know each other the last couple of years. He has a story in my book, Hey Kids Comics, and uh, I really uh, – I just sort of worship the guy. I think he's just a, a genius writer, and uh, he was very kind enough to do an interview with me for the show. So we are going to talk about his – career in comics and get into some other things as well so just uh sit back and enjoy uh the uh this interview with alan brenner like at the time that you first wrote you wrote your first comics which were you uh, pl- uh plotted uh those two issues of wonder woman wonder woman number 231 and 232 and then martin pasco wrote the script um how did you, you know, what were you doing at the time and how did you get into comics that first time well, I have to I have to go back and uh, and explain that uh, I've actually been reading comic books since I was six years old, uh, and uh, I talk about this in in my novel Palisades Park. Uh, it's uh, 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 there was a stationery store, uh, stationery candy store called Pitkoff's in Cliffside Park, New Jersey, where I lived, and my friend Miriam, my classmate uh, in first grade, she and I were the best readers in first grade, and uh, we used to go to uh, uh, Pitkoff's, which was her grandfather's store, she was in charge of opening up the comic books for the week, and then we would uh, buy the comic books, and we would go over to her house, and we would read them together, and I vividly remember she and I reading The Death of Superman, uh, the classic Jerry Siegel uh, uh, story, and just, you know, absolute, t- you know, in tears as we were as we were reading this, um, 
So uh, I, I wound up, um, you know, getting into comics fandom um, through um, Marty Pasco, who uh, he and I were both on um, among the, uh, the the many letter writers who wrote to Julie Schwartz's uh, letter columns. Right, right. And um, and he he we met through that. I uh, mentioned him in one of my letters in a Justice League, and he contacted me. And it turned out that we uh, we were both living in New Jersey in towns that were roughly adjacent to to one another. Uh, me in Halden and him in Clifton. <clears throat> so uh, so we uh, you know he, he he sent me this letter and said, uh, hey, how do you like to get together with another enthusiastic fan and do do a fanzine? And so we published a fanzine together uh, called Fantazine, uh, which uh, ran for four issues in uh, 1970 to 71, uh, and uh, uh, and then I went off to college in California. Uh, Marty went to college in uh, at Northwestern and outside Chicago. Uh, in 1976, Marty had come back to New York and was uh, basically a professional comic book writer at, at that time. I was a professional science fiction writer because I had uh, published a number of stories in uh, in science fiction magazines and anthologies. Uh, but I was making a living sort of off my, my science fiction and also from working at a, at a, a comic science fiction bookstore in Long Beach. But I was, I was a starving student. I always you know, could use the money. And Marty knew that. And he offered me the opportunity to uh, plot a comic book for him, for which I'd get paid uh, a hell of a lot more than I was getting paid for the science fiction stories I was selling. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I plotted what originally was supposed to be a Superman story, but wound up getting repurposed to a Wonder Woman story. Huh. And, uh, uh, and it happened to also fall uh, just in the period uh, after the Wonder Woman TV show set in World War II came on. So they, they switched the comic book to the Earth 2 Wonder Woman, uh, which allowed me to, to then go in and insert the Justice Society of America, <laughs> um, uh, with, which I had loved ever since they were reintroduced into the silver age, but we can talk about that a little bit, uh, a little bit later. But, but anyway, it was essentially, it was just a very kind, you know, gesture on Marty's part to get me a little bit of extra money. Uh, I, uh, I, I co-plotted those, uh, those, uh, issues. And then, um, a few years later, um, but I had, I had broken into television, um, and, uh, one of my earliest pitch meetings was at the, uh, Star Trek, phase two series that was uh, an, an abortive attempt to relaunch Star Trek uh, around 1975, 76 as a weekly syndicated series. Right. I, came, I came close to selling them a story, which I called Eclipse of Reason, and it involved the Medusans from the original uh, series. Uh, and then the whole project sort of fell apart and became the motion picture. Um, but I had this story outline, and uh, by 1980 or 81, Marty was working on uh, on Star Trek, and he needed a plot uh, for his next issue. And I was sort of able to return the favor. I said, "Hey, <laughs> I got this. What do you think? You know?" And uh, <laughs> all right, and he liked it. Now that, it makes sense. How, all right, that's how we wound up collaborating. God, all right. I always wondered how you ended up, you know, doing Star Trek number twelve. Like, it just seemed like a random. Like, what? Why is there an issue of Star Trek? And and it's been reprinted in really shoddy paperback, trade paperback recently too. Really? Oh, geez. Yes, oh, uh, IDW came out with a uh, um, uh, a reprint of all the Marvel uh, Star Treks, 
Um, and uh, uh, none of us who wrote for the or, or, or drew those uh, episode uh, issues got uh, got any payment for it. And to add insult to injury, Marvel's plates must have been just the, the most deteriorated in the world because it was the worst reproduction that you've ever seen uh, in a in a trade paper comic book saver, trade comic book uh, uh, paperback. Jeez. So. Uh, but it's out there. <laughs> it's a good story. I mean, I reread it not that long ago, and it reads like a classic episode of Star Trek. I mean, it really is. You, I definitely feel like I could have watched that in 1968 with all the actors. I mean, it has that feel to it. Yeah, Marty had to change the Medusans to Phaetonians because uh, they weren't allowing um, uh, uh, Paramount wouldn't allow Marvel to use any of the alien races from the original series. So, hmm. yeah. Okay. <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of is silly restriction and one that DC did away with when they took over the title. Oh, that's good. Um, okay, so yeah, your your first solo book, your first solo story uh, is, of course, To Kill a Legend for Detective Comics number five hundred, at least chronologically, printed wise. That's your first one. Is that the first one you wrote? That was the first script. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, and it, it it came about just because um, uh, Paul Levitz was an old friend of mine. He was actually Marty's. Uh, roommate for a time in New York. And uh, he was uh, in town, I think it was in 19, early 1979. Uh, he was in, in L.A. for a visit, and uh, we got together for dinner. And I happened to, uh, he had just become editor of the, the Batman comics. And uh, at some point, uh, uh, when I was just daydreaming about things, I had come up with this idea for a story, which I thought would make a good Batman story. So I told it to Paul, and I said, you know, if you'd like to have one of your writers, uh, you know, adapt this, you know, feel free. And he, he looked at me, and he said, well, you're a writer. Why don't you write? <laughs> and I said, well, okay. Uh, I've never written a script for a, uh, for a comic book before, but I was, I was writing plenty of uh, TV scripts. So uh, I, uh, I basically just followed the format of, uh, of Marty's scripts because I still, I still had those. Uh, and, um, uh, although I think I, I used a bit less scene description than, than Marty does in his scripts. And I, uh, I do remember I had just gotten off Buck Rogers, which was a fairly hideous, uh, staff experience. And I took a vacation at the, uh, the club med in, uh, Playa Blanca, Mexico. And I remember sitting out by the pool, um, plotting out this comic book story. Um, while I was, while I was, you know, taking dips in the pool and having fruity tropical drinks. So uh, <laughs> that was, that was, that was where it was plotted, oddly enough. And I wrote an outline for Paul and, uh, he approved the outline. He liked it. And he, uh, um, sent me the script. I wrote the script. Uh, he said he liked it. I figured it was going to wind up like a fill-in issue somewhere, you know? <laughs> And the next thing I know, well, he had told me that he uh, uh, had it scheduled as the lead story in Detective Number Five Hundred, and and I was totally stunned. <laughs> I mean, this was the last thing that I expected. I, uh, but I was I was very pleased by it, and and uh, and they told me that Dick Giordano was drawing it, and I was just thrilled by that because I was I've been a fan of Dick's for a long while, and I even talked to Dick while he was drawing the uh, the story, and I arranged to to purchase some of the original uh, the original pages. So that's how that came about. Now, was the the, the 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 kicker to the story? I mean, it's a great story from beginning to end, of course. But like, the kicker is the ending, 
where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he is still going to be Batman, but he's a, he'll be a sort of a happy Batman. He won't be a grim Batman, which is, you know, uh, one of the things I we talked about on the episode of the Supermates podcast uh, hosted by my friend Chris and Cindy Franco, where we talked about a couple of your stories, was that it's like I wanted to keep seeing adventures of that Batman, you know, of, <laughs> of, of happy Batman. That would be interesting. Now, was that part of the story did you have that at the beginning or did you have that at the beginning and sort of right to that moment or was that always part of the pro- you know it was just there from the, there the whole time um it's hard to say i can't remember right now whether it uh, i had conceived the the ending at the same at the, before i began writing the story i probably did because my usual process uh, uh in, even in writing novels is that i know the beginning i know the ending and i have a hazy idea of what the middle is. <laughs> okay uh, I mean, and you know, it's funny. You mentioned about you know that that Paul put it in front at the Detective Comics 500. Clearly, obviously, Paul knew what he had when he got it, and DC knew what they had when they got it because uh, they reprinted it a year later in their best of the year story. So it's yeah, like, was- I mean, they everyone. Uh, you know, I remember reading it. Uh, I didn't read it in the original Detective at the time. I bought. I read it in the Digest where they reprinted it. But it was just like it felt like everyone knew at the be- right off the bat. Oh boy, you know this is a killer. This one, you know. <laughs> so uh, it, it's kind of good to know that even at the time, DC knew. You know, boy, this is a winner. I mean, they, they, you know, they knew what to do with it. I, I was, I was very flattered. I, uh, I mean, there were some other very good stories in that issue of Detective. Uh, there was the uh, the end story, the dead man story, where you know Bruce meets his parents in the afterlife, and that that was that was pretty touching too. So uh, I, I was in good company. Yeah, Walter Gibson has a piece in that book, you know, Alan, you know, that's pretty amazing, you know, like, like geez, you know. It's yep. like, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the thing, when they showed me the cover for the first time, and uh, the contributors were listed in alphabetical order, and there was my name, which was like the second or third one, because it started with, uh, with B, I remember thinking, all across the country, comic book fans will be looking at this and going, who the hell is Alan Brenner? <laughs> I've said this before. I mean, the first comic of yours I ever read uh, was Brave and the Bold 182. And and I remember reading it and really enjoying it at that time. And I look back and who wrote this? And I, you know, at at that age, you don't think that people that write comics do anything else. You just think that's their job. And I was like, well, who is this guy? What other comics does he write? You know, and then I realized, well, no, he doesn't really write there. There's no other series that you're writing. But I was desperate to find whatever book you were currently writing because I was like, boy, this story is really good. I got to read more of these. Um, I think I, I think I was probably the first television writer to to make a hobby of writing comics. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't recall. I mean, certainly some comic book writers had written television, but uh, I, I could didn't know of any uh, that was the other way around. So. Uh, you know, of of the tw- you've written twelve comics uh, so far. So far, let's say twelve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready to, to say it's totally twelve, but like four of them are brave and the bold. Uh, One seventy eight, which is the creeper. One eighty one, which is Hawk and Dove. One eighty two, which is the Earth Two Robin, and then one ninety seven, which is the Catwoman. So, um, how like when you were approached to do like say the first one, which is the Batman and the Creeper, was the team up already set? Did they? You know, they come to you and say, "We want to do Batman and Creeper." Do you have a story, or no, no? I it it, it came about because Dick Giordano took over the uh, the editing of Brave and Bold from from Paul Levitz, and uh, he obviously knew my work from uh, To Kill a Legend, and he called up and said, "I'm doing Brave and Bold. Would you like to you know write a write a script or two for me?" And I immediately said yes. Uh, you have to understand that, that I was a huge Charlton fan. 
Uh, I discovered Charlton Comics in a little um, um, uh, soda shop uh, that was in the next town up from me uh, in New Jersey, and I'd never seen them anywhere else. <laughs> and I just fell in love with them. I mean, you know, Steve Ditko, Jim Apiro, Pat Goyette, I mean, these, the, and, and uh, Pete Morisi, these really distinctive, you know, artists. Uh, and, and just the, the whole feel of that Action Comics lineup, it was a little, it was, it was not as copy-heavy as Marvel, uh, but it was a little bit more adult than in some respects than what, what DC was doing, uh, at the time. And, and I really was a huge fan of that. And so in retrospect, I look back and I realize that what I was doing on Brave and Bold was, uh, I was, you know, I was, I was working with Dick Giordano. Uh, my stories were being, um, penciled by Jim Aparo and my first two, um, um, uh, team-ups uh, were Creeper and Hawk and the Dove, which were Steve Ditko creations. Uh, in, in a way, I was trying to recreate, you know, that Charlton experience, or at least that uh, uh, that uh, ni- late 1960s DC experience when when Dick went over to uh, to, to DC and edited, uh, 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 you know, Ditko's books. And so, yeah, it was my idea to do to do uh, the Creeper. Uh, it was certainly my idea to do the Hawk and the Dove because by that time they were just completely forgotten by anybody at DC, right. um, which is why I, I allowed them to age out of uh, sync with the rest of the DC universe. I mean, I figured, yeah, who's going to care? I mean, I mean, these characters hadn't been used in years since an issue of the Teen Titans. And at that point, it looked like they never would again because they were so, you know, of the sixties. And I thought, well, you know, let's, let's, let's run with that. If you're going to, if you're going to, uh, uh, if these are characters who are from the, that, that are sort of stuck in the sixties, let's make them literally stuck in the sixties in that they, they have not, they have not matured the way that they, they should have. They've aged, but not matured. Right. So, so, you know, and the creeper, I, I know people love that story, and I—it's—it's—it's it's, it's probably my least favorite of all of my of all of my uh, uh, my, my brave and bold stories. Um, I, I, the villain was—I was trying to create a, a Ditko-like villain, and I think if Steve Ditko had drawn it, it probably would have—it probably would have looked a lot more like what I had envisioned in my mind. And Jim Aparo did the best job that he could, but you know, basically, it was a—it was a. A villain made out of paper. Yeah. So, the, my favorite part of that story is just getting uh, Jack Ryder back onto the air and doing the social commentary that, that he did, which was a, a reaction to the the right wing politics of uh, in America at the time. Well, yeah. Uh, thank God that's over with. Um, is there? <laughs> I know. <laughs> is there? Um, I, uh, well, Ari, now that you brought it up, I want to ask you about that specifically. Um, that's you know all, all your stories have some very real-world concern buried in them. Uh, I mean, again, this is something I talked about on the, on the other show when we covered your stories. Is like all of your stories are about something other than the plot that's going on. And, you know, the one with Hawk and the Dove is about aging and not growing up, and, uh, to me at least, and the one with Earth 2 Robin is about sort of facing your own, your own mortality. Um, the one with Batman and Catwoman is about you know, sort of a fear of death and... and um, like, again, it turns out your writing process, do you, how do you approach that? Do you, is it like a theme that you want to get into with a particular story and then you build the sort of comic book plot around it? Or does the theme sort of naturally occur as you're writing out this story that you've come up with? 
it generally starts with the characters. You know, I think about the characters and what I like about the characters and what I would like to see done with the characters. Uh, and, and, and it goes from there. Uh, the emotional through line definitely occurs to me before the, the action, you know, storyline does. And that was one of the reasons that I never actually, you know, worked with, uh, with Julie Schwartz. I, I came to really love Julie in, 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 you know, later years, but, uh, back then, you know, I was going to do a Superman story with him. It was going to be the return of Sally Selwyn. And, um, I started pitching it to him just in, in pretty much emotional terms, like what, you know, what, 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 uh, what, what it was meant for the characters. And, and he was getting impatient and saying, well, where's the action? Where's the action? And, and this was never a question I ever heard from Dick Giordano. Uh, after that first, um, story I did for Paul, all of my brave and bold were basically just verbal pitches. I just, I just say, Dick, um, well, I, you know, I want to do something with, uh, the creeper. Uh, and he'd go, fine, go ahead. <laughs> he was, he was great to work with. Um, and, you know, occasionally it would be a little bit more than that, a little bit work, work, more worked out. But, but generally the emotional through line or the social comment, you know, I had, I had in advance. Uh, and then, um, uh, then I, then I worked out the action beats. Um, I, I, if you look, my stories are not really action heavy. They're more, they're more character pieces, but I think I have enough action in it to keep it moving along and prevent it from being, you know, just, just talking heads. Right. Uh, so, so that was sort of my, my, my process. Um, I assume uh, with the Hawk and Dove uh, one where you said that they've aged sort of out of continuity wise, they've aged. I assume you know about the, the nod that Marv Wolfman did to that in a later issue of Teen Titans. I know. I know. Yeah. I, I, I saw that and thought, well, I don't know if that was necessary or not. Um, and I also know the, the even nicer nod that uh, uh, that um, uh, Barbara and Carl Kiesel did to uh, for it in an issue of uh, Hawk and Dove when it was revived. And they basically uh, they used parts of that story as I, I finally met Barbara at a party at uh, Len Wein's just a few years ago. And she uh, she told me that they really loved that uh that story of mine and tried to, 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 to figure a way to sort of get it, get it into the, uh, the, the modern canon in some, uh, in some way. <laughs> That's but, great. Talking about, uh, Bourbon the Bold 182, which as I said, is my all time favorite, not my all time favorite, but the, certainly the first one and the one that made the great, a great impression on me. Now that features Batwoman, Kathy Kane, uh, and a lot of your stories, in fact, half of them, either feature a parallel world or specifically characters from Earth 2. Uh, is that just because you mentioned earlier that how much you love the Justice Society? Is that just from a childhood thing? You just love those characters so much? Yeah, pretty much. I, I, I love the characters when they were brought back in Justice League. Uh, I remember around that time, uh, Julie would run uh, these text features in his, uh, in his various magazines, which were little histories of the Golden Age characters, and they'd all have one little you know, picture of the character, like the specter, and then sort of a history of the character in the golden age. And I, I actually collected those. I, I actually sort of like, you know, cut them out of the, uh, uh, the, the magazine and I sort of, you know, collected them as, 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 as a, you know, a, a scrapbook. But, um, but that just fascinated me. The thing that I loved about it that really impressed me as a, as a child was the sense of history that these characters had history that that there was this world where um, all these characters debuted in the nineteen you know thirties and forties 
and they they've aged, and um, and it and it seemed to me, you know, years later, um, that DC didn't make as much of some of those characters, you know, as they could. Uh, I thought I was a great admirer of what Paul Levitz did in in the revival of All Star, you know, what he he and Jerry, Jerry Conway started and, and Paul took over, uh, because there was this feeling of okay, these are characters who are who are middle-aged, they have, you know, wives, uh, some of them have families, uh, time has moved on, and they were allowed, they were allowed to become more real, more human, than I thought most of the, the, the Earth One, you know, characters really were, because they were, you know, locked into being merchandisable. Right. They, 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 you couldn't, you couldn't vary, you know, you couldn't have, have Clark and Lois actually, uh, 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 get married back then, uh, you know, they had to, they had to stay exactly the way they were. And so I love the freedom of being able to, to use these characters and to, uh, to, 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 to show them aging and, you know, uh, the, the decisions that they made in their lives, sometimes the good, they were good ones, sometimes they were bad ones. So that was a, a great appeal to me. I also just like the idea of of, of alternate worlds in general, mainly, mainly for the same reason. I mean, you know, I wrote an entire novel, Time and Chance. Time and Chance, right, right, right. Which is set, you know, in two parallel worlds, you know, one man, uh, two lives. So, so that was very, uh, very appealing to me. And, uh, uh, and I did just love the, the, the Justice Society. And, um, and in fact, Graven Bowl 182, um, I had originally conceived as uh, Batman teaming up with the JSA. Uh, but at that time, Roy Thomas was uh, DC's Earth 2 editor, and he had approval over where they could uh, uh, appear. And he did not really want them to have appearances outside his books because okay. he wanted to keep the continuity. So I, I then had to figure out, well, I want to do an Earth 2 story. How do I do an Earth 2 story without the JSA? <laughs> and, and I started thinking about the Batman family, and I thought, well, I could do the Earth 2 Robin. Uh, I don't think Roy could object, you know, if I if I did that, um, and uh, and then, you know, Batwoman, you know, came as a, a secondary thought to that probably as I was writing it, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be cool if there was a Batwoman uh, on on Earth too? And 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 that was partly in the response to the fact that she was sort of bumped off so unceremoniously uh, on Earth One, and I thought, uh, you know, she she deserves a grace note, and um, and so I brought her in. Uh, it, uh, I was, I was, uh, taken to task for this by E. Nelson Bridwell because, you know, I had the story occur in 1955 and in, you know, the DC, you know, uh, uh, universe, she didn't appear until 1957, but my attitude, my attitude was always the same, uh, as it turns out with, as Denny O'Neill. So when Denny and I had, uh, had dinner, or maybe about 10 years ago, we were talking about this. And uh, he said, no, I always assumed that time flowed differently on Earth, too, uh, which was exactly how I figured it. Because if you try to if you actually try to apply real time to the Earth one, Earth two uh, continuity, it doesn't work. No. Robin's Robin's what, eight years old in 1930, uh, 31. So by the time the book is revived in 1976, uh, he would have been 46, 47, <laughs> something like that. And, uh, and I just figured, no, you know, the, uh, it, it, it's the time flows differently relative to each parallel world. Uh, so that I, I was not upset about that. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, Bat- giving Batwoman a nice send off. I have to assume that that was part of the impetus behind Brave and the Bold 197, which is your last Brave and the Bold because the book was only can- book was canceled three issues after that. I read I read that story again, and uh, beautiful art by Joe Staten and uh, George Freeman. The artwork mm-hmm. is just gorgeous. It feels like. I mean, obviously, you couldn't have planned this because I don't know if you necessarily knew it was happening or maybe you did. But, you know, the crisis was only two years away at this point, and they were going to get rid of there ever being an Earth 2 Batman. This feels like a nice autumnal send off of this character. And when you yeah, look totally. when you look at it from that perspective, it feels like let's give him one last hurrah before we sort of erase him from our publication history. Believe me, that was not in their minds. Uh, the, the The story came about because I was at a at a party at uh, Mark Evanier's, uh, it was after a San Diego con. I don't, I don't go to conventions, but I, uh, I would go to, to Mark's, uh, after, you know, San Diego parties. Uh, <laughs> and I was in the pool with Len Wein, uh, <laughs> meeting him for the first time. And he said that he just took over brave and bold. And did I want to write an episode? And I said, uh, sure. Notice I keep saying episode. episode yeah. <laughs> my TV, my TV groups. Um, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll write one. Um, and I'm not sure whether I said right then and there, how about if I do, you know, the, 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 the golden age Batman and the golden age Catwoman. I don't recall whether uh, I did, I, I proposed it then or later, but, uh, the reason I did it was because it was a backstory that hadn't been told. Uh, Paul had created the Huntress and we had that sort of condensed version, you know, where we, we, we find out that Bruce Wayne married Selena Kyle, but I always thought, well, how did he get to that point? Man, that's, 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 that's quite a leap, you know? I mean, even though there was, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sexual tension there. Um, so I, I, I basically proposed doing that and, um, uh, Len said, sure, go ahead. And I, um, I talked to Paul before I did it because I was trying to make sense of, of, uh, Catwoman's chronology and this whole business with, where she, she had, um, you know, got amnesia. She was an airline stewardess and she got amnesia and became, you know, uh, the cat woman after that. And, and I, I remember saying to Paul, um, you know, wow, this is, this really is contrived. I mean, how do you know, I, I wonder how I can get around that. And Paul had the brilliant, uh, notion. He said, what if she's lying? <laughs> I said, well, of course. <laughs> and it all fell into place from there. Um, uh, and uh, I think I think the thing I'm most proud of in that in that story is uh, the um, the the origin that I gave Catwoman, uh, which sort of became uh, you know canon for for the uh, Golden Age Catwoman for as brief as she as time as she was she was left, um, and that scene in which um, um, Batman gets burned on the back and she yes. uh, takes his. Uh, uh, his costume off, and she says, "My God, you've got all this scar tissue." And and he just sort of shrugs it off and says, "You know, oh, yeah, that. Well, fifteen years of fighting will do that to a person." And and that was the first time that I think anybody had uh, had had remarked on on any superhero uh, at DC having anything like continuing wounds. Other, you know, Superman would lose his powers and he'd get a black eye, but, you know, he was always fine by the end of the story. And I thought, but in the real world, I mean, this guy's got no superpowers. He's got to be really banged up. And, um, and years later, Alex uh, Ross did a, um, painting, right, right. Which he credited to, to, you know, this is based on a great Joe Staten, you know, story. Well, yes, Joe was, Joe did great artwork, but that was my idea. (laughs) Alex, thank you very much. Um, and then it later turned up in, uh, I think, uh, Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. Um, yeah, yeah. 
So that was kind of a kind of a a, a cool way to see uh, something that you uh, you wrote. Uh, uh, you know, become firmly established in the mythology. Yeah, it's absolutely become part of that character's sort of backstory. Is that he's he's all scarred up. I mean, it's just it's it's uh, there's a similar thing with um, Kingdom Come. I don't know if you ever read that miniseries, the one by Mark Wade. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Where yeah. Aquaman talks about that he is he runs seventy percent of the world. Every writer has quoted that since then. Every single Aquaman writer. So it's like Mark Wade just threw in this little line and. It's just now part of the character, and so that's. I remember reading Bat Brave and the Bold one ninety seven when it came out in nineteen eighty three, and I remember that. Mo- I literally remember reading that and going, "Yeah, of course, yeah." I mean, it makes total. I never thought of it before, but of course, Bruce Wayne's body is going to look horrible, and you have to wonder, like, what do the guys at the Gotham Country Club think when they see this guy? Like, what is go- what is this guy doing in his spare time? He keeps his polo shirt on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, good lord. So that, that was what I was trying to do in all the stories. I, I, I tried to, to sort of think, what would these characters be like if they really existed? I mean, it was it was the Marvel, you know, approach, obviously. But but DC hadn't even, even by the 1980s or so, uh, the, the early 1980s, they had not yet fully embraced that. They were they were trying. Uh, but I don't think it was until, you know, Marv did the new Teen Titans that, that you started to get real flesh and blood uh, you know, human beings in, in comic book stories. So I just tried to take up just one one extra step. Uh, and then Alan Moore came along later and went and took up like, you know, 12 extra steps yeah. <laughs> and showed us just, just how far you could go. Um, you mentioned Marvel, and that's the perfect time I want to ask you about uh, Daredevil 192, which is your second, only second uh, Marvel comic and your only solo credit on a Marvel comic. And it is the first issue of Daredevil following Frank Miller's big run. Uh, how did that come about? How did you end up writing an issue of Daredevil? Well, basically, nobody at Marvel wanted to follow Frank Miller. Yeah. <laughs> uh, honestly, this is this. I, I, I was told that every, everybody you know, when approached by it, we're going, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Forget it. Forget it. So Denny O'Neill, who'd read my, my Batman stories, called me. He said, look, I like your Batman stories, and you know, Batman's kind of similar to Daredevil. I was wondering if you'd like to do this issue. He had no idea that Dar- Daredevil was actually one of my favorite, if, if not my favorite Marvel character, especially when he was being drawn by by Gene Cole. I loved uh, I loved Daredevil. Loved the idea of the blind superhero. Loved the idea that he's a lawyer by day and a vigilante by night. And so I immediately said yes. Uh, and and you know I'd been reading Frank Miller's run on the uh, the book, which was really wonderful. Uh, and um, so I knew what what had gone before. I knew it wasn't the same book. But I also didn't try to write it exactly the way that Frank, that Frank did. I tried to keep a continuity and a style, you know, similar to what he did. But also, I threw in a little bit of the the, the Daredevil that I that I loved, which was was written. His dialogue was written by Stan Lee, um, and um, it was it, it was just a great uh, 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 it was a great lot of fun to do. Although the circumstances of it were weird, because I had I came down, I promptly came down with the flu. And I had deadlines on both Daredevil and an episode of Fantasy Island. <laughs> and I swear, uh, there were there were there were days I wasn't sure whether I was going to have Mister Rourke, you know, swinging around a flagpole, <laughs> you know, and and uh, Daredevil looking down to find tattoo was you know at his side going to plane to plane. Uh, but I was very I was very very flattered that Denny had uh, had offered this to me, especially. Because back in my my days as a as a, as a letter hack, uh, I said some very not gracious things about <laughs> uh, 
about Denny's Justice League stories. Uh, <laughs> I, I and I really I, I think Denny is one of the, the the greatest Batman writers ever. He just did a brilliant, brilliant Batman. Uh, I, I think even he would admit that Justice League was not quite his forte. Yes. But clearly, <laughs> clearly he forgave me all of that, and uh, I, I handed that in, and he immediately said, this is great. You want to do another? And I said, sure. Um, and unfortunately, at that time, I was going through some personal problems. A friend of mine had, had passed away, and it was, um, uh, it was causing me to uh, have some depression and some writer's block, and I, I wound up calling him. Uh, like when it became apparent after about a week that I was not going to be able to, to get my get my, my mind around this, I called him up and, and said, Danny, I'm sorry. I just when I explained the situation to him. And he says, don't worry about it. He says, I much I he says, this is this is very professional of you to call me, you know, with this much notice. He says, I've, I've gotten this call sometimes, you know, a day before the deadline. <laughs> and I gave him the idea. or He knew the idea that I'd come up with. Uh, and, and he wound up writing the, episode, uh, the story himself. And uh, had a little thank you to me in uh, in it, but uh, what story? But yeah, is, was, what story is that? I got to find that one. That was the one where Deborah Harris uh, gets drunk and accidentally reveals to somebody that Matt Murdock is Daredevil. All right, I mean, I yeah, I remember that. I read Daredevil all through that time. So all right, wow, I got to go back and find that one. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, yeah, you know, and there was, I think it was the very next issue, and I think that he, uh, uh, you know, he just had no choice but to write it himself. Even though at the time Marvel didn't want writers to edit their own stories, but uh, but yeah, I I would not have minded doing more Daredevils, but um, you know my schedule you know just was getting pretty busy around that time. I went on went on Twilight Zone, and uh, and I just didn't have time for uh, uh, to do any more uh, comic books until uh, around the end of uh, uh, the end of the eighties. Right. Well, there you go. Perfect segue here. Uh, your next uh, story was the the uh, I don't know. It might be. I don't want to say it's your crowning achievement because there's here's a bunch of crowning achievements here. But the Christmas with the superhero story with Dead Man, drawn again by Dick Giordano, features. I mean, even if you take out uh, for anyone who's anyone who's listening to this who hasn't read it, I'm going to spoil the ending. You should you should have read this by now anyway. Um, even if you remove the kicker ending. <laughs> The story itself of Dead Man is wonderful about what you put Dead Man through in an angle that, again, I don't think I'd seen in a Dead Man story. But how did it come about that at the end of this story, Dead Man talks to Supergirl, who had been at that point completely erased from DC continuity? Well, yes, and I was pretty pissed off about that, actually. <laughs> uh, I really, I mean, the way that, it was, that Crisis was originally supposed to have ended was that everybody... You know, at least the um, uh, the heroes who went back to the beginning of time, you know, they remembered at least the uh, the uh, uh, the Earth Two heroes and Supergirl. And then when they decided that they were going to, John Byrne decided he was going to completely reboot uh, Superman. You know, I guess it was it was decided, okay, well, Supergirl never existed. And to me, that seemed like not only kind of a uh, uh, you know, a repudiation of, of, of a great character that meant a lot to many of us growing up, but also the work of the of the writers and artists who did that. It was sort of a kick in the in the teeth to uh, to Jim Mooney and uh, and Otto Binder. And uh, so when Mark asked me to do this um, this um, um, Christmas story, which incidentally was done after my Secret Origin story, that was actually the first one I did. Before oh that. wow! Okay. But um, 
uh, I, I conceived the somewhat seditious idea of doing a <laughs> dead man story. And at the end, you know, we would sneak in the ghost of Kara Zora. And, um, uh, and, and unlike some of the, there have been rumors circulating that, that out there among fans that, that this was done without the knowledge of, you know, of anybody at DC, you know, that it was, it was Mark, uh, Mark Wade and, and, and me sort of sneaking it in there somehow. It's like, it was drawn by the editor in chief and <laughs> vice president of the company. <laughs> in fact, Mark said he brought it into him for Dick to okay it editorially. Dick read it, clutched it to his chest and said, mine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which was great because I, I, I mean, it's very flattering, and also I, I just love Dick, Dick's artwork, and he did a great job on that. And I think he did. He, 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 he drew Kara in a way that, in retrospect, is recognizable as her, but it would not tip her off, tip readers off rather, the way it would have if Jim Mooney had drawn her. You know, we would right. have known it was Kara from the get go if Jim Mooney had drawn her. So, um, so yeah, it was, and it was actually also approved. This was sent to all of the uh, the the um, uh, the group editors. You know, Mike Carlin signed off on this. Um, where the trouble came in was when the freelancers working for the Superman books saw this, and they said, "Well, wait a minute. We've been saying all along that uh, you know she never existed. And now you say you know have this," and um, and they were really, really quite um, quite distressed about this, hmm. and. Uh, they even went, I was told, <clears throat> that they even went into Dick and they said, okay, we have a way to make this part of continuity. Because over in, over in Justice League Europe, Power Girl is in, a, is in a coma right now. So how about if we say that this was her astral self <laughs> that was projecting and that, that's who Dead Man meets. <laughs> and, you know, and Dick, you know, God bless him, just said, guys... It's just a nice little Christmas story. End of story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it out, and it went out there, and I was very pleased that uh, that that I got to. Again, it was a grace note for the character. Um, I, I I thought, you know, her her death in, in crisis was fine, but what they did to her later, just unmaking her, that I thought was, uh, you know, she deserved better than that. Right. And uh, and and happily, that became part of. Uh, Part of uh, DC continuity, and a few uh, uh, maybe ten years later, uh, Peter David did the same thing. He brought in the, the, the spirit of Kara Zor-El in, in uh, one of the um, uh, the Supergirl Matrix stories that right. he did. Am I? Uh, is it too far of a reach to assume that your dog Kara is named after Supergirl? You know, a, I don't know how many people will believe this, but yes and no. We got her with that name. Oh we Lord! Ad- <laughs> we adopted her. Uh, 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 and the, uh, the trainer who had, her original name had been Montana and her trainer gave her the name Kara with a K, uh, because she said it was Hebrew for second chance. Oh. Well, I, I looked it up and it's not, oh. I, mean, it's not. I mean, I don't know where she got that. Uh, my wife wanted to call her Molly and I said, no, no, we have to keep the name. Kara is a noble name. She sacrificed herself to save the universe. And, and so, of course, Paul Latch just sort of sighed and said, "Yes, dear, I understand." Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but we do we did add Zorel as her middle name. All right. <laughs> yes. That's great. Uh, well, sorry, you mentioned the uh, the other story, the Secret Origins story, which is Unfinished Business, which ran in the final issue of Secret Origins. Again, you've got Joe Staten and Dick Giordano, so you got a two for there. 
Um, by, the, by the way, I, I forgot to mention, I actually requested Joe for the uh, the Batman uh, Catwoman story because I, I loved his work and I knew him, you know, through Marty Pasco. And he happened to be in town um, right after I had, you know, um, um, you know, requested this. And he and I went over the story together, so he sort of knew what was what was coming. Kind of, uh, it was the one time that I actually, you know, really that that and Norm Brayfogle were about the only times that I worked directly with the artists at all. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, Joe State's one of the best guys ever to do it. You really, I mean, not only are the stories great, but you really had a, I mean, a Paro State and Claus Jansen. I mean, you had a really good string of artists doing your stories. Yeah, yeah um, I was lucky. So how did the Black Canary origin come about for Secret Origins 50? It was Mark Wade. Mark had just become an editor at DC, um, and uh, he called me up, uh, left word on my my um, uh, answering machine in, um, in Los Angeles. And I was on a vacation in Hawaii, and I got this message, called him up. He said he was you know, editing Secret Origins, and uh, would uh, I be interested in doing the Black Canary origin? And at first I turned it down. I thought, oh, I don't know. There's really – that character's never really done much for me aside from the fishnets. <laughs> and uh, so my girlfriend and I went down to breakfast. And uh, sometime during breakfast, uh, as she put it, I went away. My eyes sort of uh, became glassy. I was staring into the distance as I realized, well, wait a minute. In this new universe, there were two black canaries. Uh, there's the Golden Age Black Canary, and she didn't go off to Ragnarok with the rest of the Justice Society. Why was that, I wonder? Um, I think it was because Roy Thomas forgot about her. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that became the uh, – uh, I suddenly realized, well, now this is an interesting story. So I, I called Mark Wade back and said, is, is it still available? And I pitched him my take on it, and it became uh, – uh, a story of two black canaries uh, and uh, the uh, the way that they, um, um, you know, the, the mantle was passed from one to the other. Uh, and, uh, and, and to make it more dramatic and because it just seemed, it seemed like the right thing to do. I had, you know, the, the, uh, the, the estranged mother dying uh, and um, um, Dinah, you know, goes to her bedside. Um, and for me, the whole story really was, <clears throat> The two pie points for me was when Wildcat is talking about his girlfriend, Irina, mm-hmm. uh, back in the 40s, and she got pregnant and had this baby. But one of his uh, foes, the, um, the yellow wasp, which I mistakenly referred to as gold, the golden wasp, um, was uh, – so sue me um, – had kidnapped it and uh, was, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, was, was not going to – was basically – tormented Wildcat with the knowledge that he would never see his child again. Um, and, and Wildcat admits, this is, you know, this is, you ever wonder why so many JSAers did not have children? This is the reason, you know, mm. it's a dangerous life. Uh, I was also setting up something that I thought someone surely would pick up on, uh, which was that son. And, um, and Jeff Johns, although he knew about that story because he, uh, he, he told me he'd, uh, he and David Boyer uh, had uh, had read it and were, were sort of using it as a Bible of sorts for their JSA stories. Um, he didn't really pick up on it. Uh, it turned out that, like you know, there was somebody who was who knew the guy, you know, who was the uh, you know Wildcat's son. So I don't know. It seemed an obvious thing to do, but uh, sometimes the most obvious ones aren't done. And then the, and then at the end. Uh, I got to put in a little bit more of my seditious stuff about the fact that uh, all of the the souls of everybody from Earth 2 actually still existed. Uh, 
And uh, it, it got edited, not by Mark, because Mark, Mark had left the book by that time, um, but, um, and, and not because of the Supergirl story. This was, he did not get fired over the Supergirl story. Uh, but um, it, it, got, it got edited by a copy editor and uh, to take out some of that. But I think there's enough of it still there that you still get the idea. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Except, and again, it's another nice send-off for this character that, as you said, I think most people forgot. Because, you know, she was never really part of the JSA stories at a certain point. And, and then you had the other version that was going around. So, yeah, it was just like, oh, yeah, there's still Black Canaries around somewhere. So Now, the next thing you did is probably, arguably uh, your splashiest thing you've ever done for a comic book is, was, was an Elseworlds book. A, a solo Elseworlds book, which is Batman Holy Terror. I'm hard-pressed when I first read it to sort of connect it up with with what I knew about your stories. Because uh, I find that even though your stories you know, have all the dramatic stuff, a lot of death. They seem generally upbeat. Um, and this is heavy. This is a very heavy story. And I mean, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's basically, you know, it's an elsewhere story of Batman lives in a, in this universe that is a theocracy. And, uh, I mean, where did, where did this come from? Well, I was, I was approached by this by, um, uh, again, by Mark Wade, who started out as the first editor and it was taken over by Diddy O'Neill. And um, uh, this, it actually was the first to bear the Elseworlds logo. It was after Gotham by Gaslight. Oh, wow. And, you know, it was, uh, it, it was partly, you know, the opportunity to work at a, the graphic novel uh, length, which I had not done before, and also at a, you know, having a freedom in the format because this would not be a code-approved comic book. Um, and that was something that I was interested in doing. Um, and so the, the story was darker than any of my other ones, but it was it had a more serious linchpin. I mean, it was uh, it was a, it was about an America that was a theocracy, which was something that you know I felt pretty strongly about. I uh, uh, you, you can trace it all the way back to my Creeper, you know, Jack Ryder monologue in uh, the Creeper story. Right. But um, you know, if there's one thing I uh, um, um, uh, you know I, I believe in, it's the, the separation of church and state, and uh, I think that. Uh, um, you know, when, when, when there's confusion between the two of them, um, uh, it is, it is bad for the country and it is bad for citizens uh, as, uh, um, as, as, as I believe is the, you know, what we can learn from the, uh, the Hobby Lobby case, but, but without going into, into politics too deeply, this was just my, my way of finding a, an interesting background for it that had some meat to it. And it just turned into a darker story because I, I thought, well, of necessity, Batman has to be the only hero. He has to be the first hero in here. So, what happened to all of those to those other uh, other heroes of the uh, the Justice Society and the Justice League? And so, I set about finding you know horrible ways to dispose of them. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite being the uh, the misdirection of the Green Man, who you know I was uh, trying to get everybody to think was either the Martian Manhunter because Doctor Burdell was was involved. Or Green Lantern, and it turned out, of course, to be Superman right. with kryptonite, kryptonite poisoning. Um, so yeah, it was. It's 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 darker. It's also it was a more difficult story for me to write because I was used to writing, you know, these twenty-page, twenty-two-page stories, and I didn't have to really work the plot out that much in advance. I was able to write the script um, pretty much as I went along. On this, because there was like 48 pages or, or whatever, I found myself actually having to sit down 
and uh, and, and and lay out a you know I take a, a sheet of eight and a half by eleven paper and put on a grid and actually start to sketch in some of the action so that I had an idea of what the pacing for the first uh, you know ten or fifteen pages was going you know was going to be it was it was something that I had never never done before and at times it really didn't work because uh, there's there's a two page sequence there where there's so much exposition that the um, uh, the word balloons are practically crowding the characters out of the out of the panels. So um, uh, I, uh, you know, I should have uh, I should have let um, Norm just sort of, you know, plot that plot that part uh, part of it by himself. He could have pasted a lot better. But uh, yeah, it was it was not it was not uh, as as pleasant a writing experience. Uh, partly because of the format and partly because. You know, I sort of had tied myself into writing a very dark story, uh, but it was also a story that I uh, that I that I a theme that I cared about. So, uh, and it did uh, it did pretty well. I think we sold something like seventy five or eighty thousand copies of that. There was never any trouble at DC for for writing this kind of story because this could be perceived as you know pretty offensive to people if they choose to. I mean, just touching religion in comics at all is. Is a is a live wire. So uh, there was never any issue at, at DC with it. Oh, I never heard a word. I mean, no. I, I I was I was fully expecting to hear something about uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne arrested for counter reproductive activity. Right. Um, <laughs> but because uh, I was I was pushing it. I mean, you have to understand by this time Alan Moore had come along, and and you know the the landscape of what was doable in comic books had changed completely. So, uh, so I thought, well, I'll just try to push the envelope a little bit in my, in my own way. And, um, uh, and yet I know I heard nothing from DC about it. Um, they, uh, DC, Denny O'Neill, who took over the, uh, the book, uh, you know, liked the, uh, uh the story very much. Norm Brayfogle liked the story very much. Um, I think I got one, I, I got maybe two letters about this. One was from um, a, a very, you know, serious Catholic who objected to, um, you know, my, you know, libeling the church. And I had to point out to him, no, no, this this is not the Catholic church. This is a Protestant theocracy. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, he didn't know quite as much about history as he did about religion. Um, but, um, uh, and the other one. Uh, was a, a, a fan letter that Denny said uh, they got at the office, which was from a nun in New York City, wow. who said who said that it was quote one of the most you know faith affirming stories that she had ever read. Oh my goodness! And as Denny said, he said, "I'm not sure I'd be willing to go that far." Wow. <laughs> neither neither would I, Denny. Although that was how I was writing it. I wrote as a, I wrote it as uh, you know that, that that Bruce genuinely was you know had faith, but that faith had been corrupted by the church. Uh, to me, that was the only way to write the story. And the fact that I was an agnostic, um, you know, didn't in- interfere with that any more than, you know, when I wrote a, a nun in Molokai, of course she had to be, you know, uh, uh, she had to uh, have uh, have faith or at least, a, you know, a troubled faith. So, um, uh, but those were the only two letters I know that we, that we even received. Uh, go figure. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that is surprising about the story, if you just read it in a one-sentence summary and you say, oh, Bat, you know, this Elseworlds story, Batman lives in a theocracy, you immediate, your brain immediately assumes, well, he won't be a believer. He's fighting against it. And then one of the nice surprising things about the story is, no, he is. He is, he is a man of faith. He just conflicts against the corruption of it 
But I mean, he himself, it's, it's a strange thing to read Bruce Wayne talking about belief in God. That's a very, you know, you never see that in any Batman comic. So that's a, that was a nice switch up is that it's just not what you're expecting. You know, it really is, is not what you're, what you're thinking you're going to get. Well, I figured if Bruce was not aware that, that the church killed his parents and that it was, you know, thought it was just a random street crime, you know, that, that him growing up to become a priest, probably it was a logical extension because he's lost his parents you know, who does he have to turn to? Uh, he turns to God. And, um, uh, and, 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 and his is, you know, ironically the purer form than the, uh, uh, than the, than the form that this, this corrupt theocracy has taken. And, you know, before we move off this, I just have to be, I have to tell you this. It breaks my heart that the one time in your comics writing career, you wrote Aquaman, <laughs> you wrote him as a vegetable floating in a giant water tank and he has no dialogue. <laughs> like, you're breaking Sorry my heart, that. Alan. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I, uh, I, I, I liked Aquaman, but it was, he wasn't one of my favorite characters. Uh, but I knew he had to be in there. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, and then there was even a reference to Laurie Lamaris in there someplace. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It makes me so. I mean, there's a bunch of your letters in the old 60s Aquaman comics. Uh, so they're in there and I just, yeah, you know, but. I really like what I, I loved Steve Skates's uh, run on that book. I thought it was great. Plus it was Jim Apparel. Yes. And Dick Giordano. So there you go. It's good. Yeah. The, all the Charlton guys do. Yeah. That's, that's my single favorite run of Aquaman still is those, those Skeets stories from the sixties. So, uh, well, so now we move on to the very, li- so far. So again, let's, let's hold out hope. You're <laughs> your so far last credit, uh, in comics is in Batman Gotham Knights number 10. And you did the Batman black and white story, which is called guardian. And it was drawn by, uh, I have to, I'll explain this in a second. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, which is something we always say every time we mention his name on the show because we just okay. all love his work so much. Uh, talk about your string of great artists. I mean, good Lord. Uh, and this is another Earth 2 sort of story because you've got the Earth 2 Green Lantern in here. Now, how did all this come about? Well, you know, um, uh, it, it, the, the, the editor of, um, of, uh, of Batman Gotham Knights called me and, uh, and asked me to uh, uh, if I'd do, do a little eight-page Batman story. And I said, sure. Uh, and as it happened, I had this idea I, when I'd been I'd been reading the new DC universe, you know, as it was had been reconceived. And I, I thought, you know, they haven't done the story about how Alan Scott met, you know, Batman or how Batman, you know, and, and he I mean, they're both in Gotham City. When did they when did they meet? Uh, so I I, uh, I decided to, to just sort of tell that backstory again. It's a, it's a story I wanted to see. I wanted to hear to, to have told. And, and it was fun to write because I, I, I played with I, I played Green Lantern as sort of the the nearly omnipotent figure that he was in James Robinson's Golden Age miniseries, and I even used the um, uh, the, the the idea from that that um, that Alan retires because it was getting too easy for him. Anything he could do anything with that ring, and he needed to struggle and to to to, to really you know work like like a human being. And be a human being again for, and that's why he retired in, uh, in the fifties after the HUAC, um, uh, um, uh, committee. So, um, <clears throat> so I sort of used that and, and I was able to play off the two characters and, uh, and it was also sort of like a, um, um, there were the, the closing scene in, um, uh, little Paris when he's talking about, uh, Bruce is talking about, uh, 
be taking the roller coaster ride with his with his father. You know, that was me taking the roller coaster ride with my dad at Palisades Park wow. uh, when I was when I was a kid. Um, and um, so I handed it in, and uh, at first uh, the the artist that I was told uh, was going to be drawing it was Dave Gibbons. Ooh. And I thought, wow, wow, <laughs> Dave Gibbons. Okay, great, cool. Months go by. And final, and 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 um, um, and uh, Mark Chiarello calls me and says, "Well, Dave sent it back. He can't do it after all. He's got too much to do. But he give he just gave the script to Gil Kane." Ooh! <laughs> and I mean, I nearly, you know, I nearly fainted right then and there. I mean, the, the thought of having, you know, one of my stories, much less a story with Alan Scott in it, drawn by Gil Kane. Um, and I thought, well, that. That you can't do better than that, and and then Gil Kane promptly died, oh. um, and I swear it wasn't my script that did, um, <laughs> and um, and 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 then he then he wound up going to Garcia Lopez, who's who's a, a terrific artist, and I and I love what he did with it. I thought he was too excellent, but you know, part of me still feels like, oh, Gil Kane, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> if only, yeah, if oh, only. Wow. sure. How could you not? I mean, good lord, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's I said it's a, it's a really great story and another great angle. Um, I guess now's the perfect time to to, to mention it because uh, you've come up on the internet. Uh, this thing went viral a little bit about your uh, issue with DC Comics currently uh, involving the Gotham TV series. Now, most people have probably seen the article because it, it it went all around, which is great. I mean, it, a lot of places picked it up. But for anybody who hasn't been following it, uh, why don't you give a brief explanation as to what the issue is in terms of creators' rights, and, and specifically with you and, and the Gotham TV show? Well, basically, in my first Batman story, um, which was set in an alternate world that was about 20 years behind Earth-1, uh, I created uh, a character named Barbara Keene, who was the fiancé of Lieutenant James Gordon. And uh, I, uh, I had her resemble, you know, her daughter-to-be, uh, Barbara, and even gave her the same, the same first name because I thought it was kind of, kind of cool to say that, to show that, well, you know, Bar- Babs got her, her beauty and brains and even her name from, from her mother. The character was picked up on uh, later by Frank Miller, um, who named uh, James Gordon's um, wife in Batman Year One, Barbara. Uh, and she was then picked up, picked up, uh, Barbara, uh, Kazel wrote a, or Barbara Randall, as she was then known, wrote a, uh, secret origins for her. And the character was referred to as Barbara Keen Gordon, uh, in, in several instances. Uh, and she was even used in a couple of, uh, of the Batman movies, although her appearances are, are pretty brief. I didn't really think too much about this until I saw that Gotham was going to be, you know, uh, out this fall. And it listed one of the recurring characters as Barbara Keene, fiance of Lieutenant James Gordon. And I thought, now this is just too close. So I emailed, you know, a couple of people at DC who finally got me to the to the person who was in charge of uh, of equity, which is the, uh, uh, the the sort of you know payment that is made if you have equity in a character, you have you're entitled to payment uh, uh, when it's used in other media. And he basically turned me down and said, well, no, the character is too similar. It's derivative of, uh, of her own daughter, Barbara Gordon, because you made her look like her, you know, and so, and, and she even has the same name. And I responded and said, well, you know, Mark Wade's, uh, you know, character, Bart Allen, 
was derivative of Barry Allen, and yet he says he's gotten, you know, uh, uh, equity in that, and he's paid for it, paid for it, the character when it appeared, uh, he appeared on Smallville. Uh, and and what's more, there that there is derivative. You do you do make payments for derivative characters. And I suggested, look, give me a give me a you know just just at a reduced percentage. And I said, give me a reduced percentage on the character. It would be. I've had a long and largely positive relationship with DC. I'd hate to see it end over a you know matter of a few hundred dollars. Well, it would actually be less than that. I later I later learned. But he never even returned my last email. Mm. Um, and that's when I just decided I to go public, and I, I posted it on Facebook, uh, and not really uh, necessarily thinking that anything was going to come of this, other than that I figured if this is happening to me, it's probably happening to a lot of other creators. And I actually have talked to a number of comic book writers since who, who said, "Oh yeah, I've been I've been screwed over in that respect by DC," and uh, I thought most of these. These writers are dependent on DC for their living, and they're not going to make waves. I'm, I'm not dependent on DC in any way as a novelist. Uh, so I, I went public with it. And, um, uh, and, and I maintain that, that uh, Dick Giordano and I uh, do deserve compensation for this, because in, in the 30 years, I mean, there was a Mrs. Gordon that appeared, a nameless Mrs. Gordon that appeared in 1951 back on Earth 2. But in the 30 years since then, there was no appearance of the, the, the Earth One James Gordon's or the, the, the New Earth James Gordon's um, uh, wife until my story. Uh, and then after that, they quickly renamed the Golden Age Mrs. Gordon Barbara. So somebody liked it. Frank Miller used the name Barbara in Batman Year One. And since my story, you know, there have been 52 instances of the character used and, and in two movies. So clearly... This character is of value to DC, even though they're they're trying to disparage it as just a derivative character. And I figure if this character has value to them, then Dick and I should get some kind of compensation. And I know it's going to be practically nothing. I was told by one creator that he gets $45 every time a character he has full equity in is used on a TV show. <laughs> so for something like this, probably they pay, pay, pay Dick and me each $25. Um, but they won't even they won't even consider that. So, you know, I, I think it's pretty, pretty petty and sleazy when a company is willing to screw over a creator over twenty five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that, that bothers me when these things come up and unfortunately they are coming up more and more is that, first of all, when something like this pops up, all of a sudden comics fans become experts in contract law. You know, they all of a sudden, everybody knows, oh, no, no, that's not right. And like, first of all, you don't know. You don't know what was signed. You don't know. Uh, and second of all, there's a kind of like blind, I don't want to see how the sausage is made mentality. You know, it's like, just give me the comics I want and give me the show I want. And I don't want to hear about, you know, how it gets made. And it's like, well, these are people. These are people that did this for their livelihoods. I mean, not so much in your case, but uh, certainly others. And, you know, it's troublesome. It's troublesome to just know that. Troublesome to me, just just as somebody who, you know, I, I, the only Marvel movie I've actually paid money to see was Captain America, the first Captain America movie, because I knew that Joe Simon had made some sort of a settlement with, with, uh, with Marvel. Right. Um, but, you know, I didn't go to see any, any, any of the Thor or Iron Man movies because I just could not bear the thought of watching characters that were co-created by Jack Kirby and knowing that the Jack Kirby estate is not receiving a dime for that. Yeah. That, that just interferes with my, with my enjoyment of the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those are... No, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. 
I was going to say, though, you know, my my little dust up with D.C. is just, you know, trivial compared to, you know, the Kirby estate not getting money and Bill Finger uh, yeah. being you know, not getting credit for uh, having co-created Batman. Um, in terms of, you know, I mean, I would imagine that at least for the time being, you know, they're, you're never going to do anything again for DC, at least for now. I mean, I guess some the big change would have to occur. Um, are you, do you feel like you're done with doing comp? Like you've never done anything for independent, for an independent company. Would you ever be interested in that? Or is it just that DC Marvel have these characters that you grew up on and that's what attracts you? Well, I've been I've been offered uh, offered things, and actually, one the one that I, I came closest to doing was I was actually offered <clears throat> by Scott Dunbeer at uh, Wildstorm uh, to uh, I was offered um, the opportunity to take over Top Ten, the oh, Alan wow. Moore series, and I agreed to do it because I loved Top Ten. I thought it was one of the most brilliant comics that I I'd read in years. Hey, huh? <laughs> well, you're, you're going to have quite a time editing this. Uh, yeah, I always have to do some trivia. Anyway, we're heading into the final stretch. I think we should be okay. <laughs> okay. Where did where did where did you lose me? Uh, we'll start at uh, you got offered top ten. So I was offered um, the opportunity to continue Alan Moore's top ten, which I I immediately said yes to because I loved that book. I thought that it was one of the most imaginative, you know, innovative and, 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 and downright funny books at times, um, that I'd seen in years. Uh, and I got the idea to do a mini series, which would be the silver age top 10, the characters in from the 1960s. <laughs> and, uh, this was at the point that Alan was just finishing the script for the 49ers, which was the world war II, the golden age for, you know, top 10. And, um, I had ideas of what I w- what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how many of the characters from the 49ers would continue, uh, you know, into the 1960s, meaning how would they be alive or not at the end of the 49ers? And I just asked, you know, them, could you please have Alan tell me who survived so I know who I can use? And literally months went by without getting this information or without getting my contract either, which was, was even more disturbing. Um, and, um, and finally, um, I got an offer to go on Star Trek Enterprise. 
and um, I couldn't turn that down. Uh, and I, I still didn't have a contract for the for the, uh, the miniseries, and I wasn't getting the information I needed out of Alan Moore, so I had to call up Scott and say, "I'm sorry, I, I just can't uh, I can't do this." And um, and I I, I think um, uh, Paul De Filippo did a, a miniseries instead. So um, so I sort of regret that because it would have been a lot of fun to 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 to, uh, to do. But um, it was just one of those instances where I, I, I couldn't get what I needed to start writing. That's a shame. That's a real shame. I would have liked to have read that. Um, so you're, but you're not ruling it out? I mean, it's something that something could come up uh, down the line, even in between novels that uh, might interest you? Yeah, I, I don't rule it out completely. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't really read many comic books these days. Um, and, uh, I, am certainly, I, I stopped reading DC with the reboot because I just thought my, my brain is filled up with enough DC continuity as it is. <laughs> Can't take another one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't expect to do anything for DC again, unless they surprise me and, and, uh, right. and do the right thing. Um, and Marvel pretty much has the same work for higher terms. So, uh, you know, if, if there's an independent out there and it's the right project, um, who knows? I might, I might say yes. Oh, that's good. Um, so, uh, you know, during all this time that we've been covering all your comic, right, you were writing TV, you were writing TV shows. You did the, the, the reboot of the twilight zone in the eighties, which was such a great show. Um, and then you did uh, different episodes. You talked about Buck Rogers. You wrote a couple episodes of China beach, which is one of my favorite TV shows at the time. Um, now you did, you know, you were writing novels as well. You had time and chance. What were other ones from that time? And you had time and chance. Did you have any other time? Yeah, I did one called Kindred Spirits, which was published in 1984 and, um, and time and chance. And I have a first novel that I published when I was like 24, 25, which shall go nameless. It was a paperback original and it was, it was, uh, you know, not, uh, not me at the best form, but you know, I was. I, I, I hadn't really started writing television at that point. I really became a better novelist after becoming a TV writer because I learned more about structure. Right. Uh, I, I really, uh, you know, learned a lot more about plot and about structure and, uh, and, and how you can ignore it, too, sometimes if you, if you want to, particularly in the novel form. But you still need that knowledge, yeah. structural knowledge. So, um, uh, yeah, and then I, I worked on L.A. Law in the, uh, the early 90s. But Time and Chance was kind of a you know, uh, a failure in, uh, uh, in paperback. It did <clears throat> okay in hardcover, but in paperback, it was massive returns. And after that, I thought, well, I really, I'm not going to go down back and write another fantasy novel. Uh, I, I'm going to, and so I concentrated on doing development work, uh, TV movies, miniseries, pilots. And, um, and then I, um, uh, I, I started looking around to do another novel and, uh, I came across the story about, uh, the people of Kalapapa, the leprosy settlement on Molokai. And it was a story that, that, that I had heard in, in, in some detail before, but never in its full detail. And, and I realized that it had never really been told uh, uh, in, in that detail, and I, I became obsessed with telling the story. Right. Yeah, it's a great. It's a great book. It's a great. I mean, I've read all these all these novels, the historical novels you wrote, but that, that's a great book. It was really, a, it was a labor of love. I, it, I wrote it on entirely on spec. It took me three years. Um, and um, uh, it was, we, we, we endured a number of financial hardships while I was writing it. And, and for, several, for several years afterward, too, because I, uh, I had, was not writing television at that, uh, at that point. Uh, I did pick up a, a couple of staff jobs after that. But uh, by, um, by the time 
uh, all around 2007 or so, Molokai had sold enough that my publisher was offering me, you know, something approaching real money to write a book. <laughs> and uh, I've been uh, I've been sort of a full time novelist ever since. I have a a movie version of Time and Chance, which is uh, theoretically alive. Uh, there's a, a studio that uh, wants to do it. There's an actor that they want to star in it, and if he says yep, yes. Um, they'll greenlight the picture. Wow. Um, but this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, I used to say uh, that, uh, that that Hollywood development time was measured in, you know, could be in glacial, you know, <laughs> things, you know, glaciers melted faster than, um, than, than things moved in Hollywood. Well, now glaciers are literally melting faster than things <laughs> So oh, I can no not, longer say that. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny at all. <laughs> I know, I know. It's sort of it's a, it's funny because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear on that, and I'm also working on a proposal for a new historical novel. Wonderful. Like I said, uh, your last book for anybody who has uh, doesn't know was Palisades Park, which is a great read. Uh, you know, it's it's you know taking place in where where Alan grew up and. Uh, that you know, it's a great book, and it comes out in paperback in October. Is that right? It's oh, it's already out in paperback. Oh, it already, it's, it's already out in paperback. Okay, I'm it's sorry. Out in paperback, you can get it in in, in as an ebook in paperback, uh, and uh, there may even be hardcovers around there. And I should say that there's a lot of comic book references in the book. There sure is. There sure is. Uh, it would make a great comic book. I think they're, they're doing more and more of these sort of like, you know, um, you know, novelistic sort of long form graphic novels. I can see Palisades Park as a comic book. I think it would be interesting. I never thought of that. That 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 might be an intriguing uh, intriguing idea. Yeah, all the stuff with people diving. There's got a lot of visual to it that I could see, you know, being done in that format. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe something to think about. Um, well, what are you working on now? I'm just working on this proposal for the new book. Uh, we'll get it out to my agent, and then get it from there to my editor. And uh, if she likes it, I'll I'll work on that. And um, uh, and I, as I say, I've just been sort of preoccupied uh, partly with uh, uh, this movie and partly with uh, some, you know, personal right, uh, right. personal problems. Right. But uh, but I'm um, you know I'm hopeful that my my editor will like this and I'll be started starting work on a new new book pretty soon. Excellent. Well, I, Alan, I mean, I really got to thank you for for first of all also for having a story in my book, Hey Kids Comics, that meant the world to me. It's a great story. Mahalo, Kaniki. Anybody who hasn't read it, go and read it. Um, but I thank you so much for doing the show just because, you know, a lot of people that I grew up with, you know, are fi- fans of your work. But because you don't live in that comic book universe, you're sort of, you know, kind of – it's not unknown. That's not the right word. But you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like you're, you're not somebody you see at a convention. You're not – you know. And so it's like – there are people who love your stuff and they're just like, who is that guy? You know, like what? Oh, that's the guy that did the twilight. It's so I was really, um, energized to have you on the show. So people could just hear from you directly about, you know, these stories and stuff like that. So I know everyone's going to love it. Uh, I, I'm really very honored that you're doing the show and, uh, I hope you enjoyed it and, and thanks for doing it. Well, it was my pleasure. And it was my pleasure writing for uh, Hey Kids Comics. It's a terrific book. Thank you, Alan. That means the world to me. So um, thank you very much. And uh, like I said, we look forward to your next book. Great. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. And that was uh, our interview with Alan Brennard. I hope you all enjoyed it. I know I did. It was just a real thrill getting to talk to him long form like that. I've had a chance, luckily, to meet the man when he came out to New Jersey last year for a book signing. And uh, 
uh, like I said, I was deeply, deeply honored that he has a story in my book. That's just uh, unbelievable. Uh, and I hope um, I hope that he does some comics work in the future. I hope that we have not seen the last comic book uh, written by Alan Burnett because uh, there is some good stuff out there, a lot of good stuff. And uh, as we've, I think he's you know somewhat known for. Two of his stories are in the greatest Batman stories ever told book. So uh, his stuff has been reprinted here and there. A lot of it has not. Um, I would say go out and find those issues. Um, we will have a complete list of Alan Bernard's comics work in the show notes. So you can go and find them. Go find them in your comic book stores, your back issue stores, or find them on eBay. They're not terribly expensive, and they are completely worth your time. You know, we've talked about on the show previously about how some comic books you read and you know, 45 seconds, and you're like, I spent three bucks for that. Well, that's not the case with an Alan Brenner comic. You will get your money's worth because uh, his stories are complex and deep and interesting and funny and, and everything else, and you really uh, you really get a, a lot of bang for your buck. So go out there and, and find these books. Uh, as always, if you want to find me, you can uh, go to AquamanShrine.net. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Google+. Shag, I'm on Google+. Shag can be found at FirestormFan.com, and he's also on Google+. And uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and smoke signals and uh, writing things in the back of highway signs. It's all kinds of stuff. And um, you can email the show at firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. The Tumblr is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. And until the next episode, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Stand for truth and justice and see on land and air. Firestorm and Aquaman, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah! And there's Jack, who's the youngest son, mm -hmm. and uh, he's more sensitive. Mm -hmm. I, I put parts of myself, because I grew up in this area, I put yeah. parts of myself in both characters. Uh, yeah. I, like uh, uh, Tony, I used to swim in the pool, and I used to climb the Palisades, you know, virtually every day. Yeah. Uh, like Jack, I was the kid on the softball team uh, who let the ball go whizzing over his head because I'm yeah. thinking about a comic book I read the day before.